You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is a new show from Medusa, our first English language podcast. So please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda, a new podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. Medusa publishes a lot of in-depth original journalism, but these stories' links to the wider community of experts and reporters working in this field aren't always clear. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, and on today's show, we'll be talking about leaked databases and how the black market for this information has become a key aspect of Russian law enforcement and investigative journalism in Russia. The Russian Presidential Affairs Department's Scientific Research Computing Center. That's something we're going to talk about a lot in this story, but we're going to call it GRCC to maintain our sanity. This whole thing, the GRCC, develops systems to monitor and de-anonymize social media users, and it sells these systems to government and private clients alike, using the services Pskov and Sherlock, for example, insurance companies can root out dishonest employees and security guard companies can recruit new staff. Poseidon, meanwhile, which is another one of these programs, allows the police to hunt down extremists online. Medusa has learned that these computing systems collect information on Russians, not just from open sources, but from leaked databases that are sold illegally on the black market in Russia. Many of those using these systems, moreover, are the same law enforcement officials who leaked the private data in the first place. There was a guy I've met through covering uh, the story about Russian mercenaries fighting in Africa, Libya, and Syria. This, by the way, is Lily Yaparova. She's the Medusa investigative correspondent. And he once told me... Who wrote the Information Nation, a Kremlin-managed research center, is selling services that can de-anonymize anyone in Russia. And I was completely surprised to, to hear it, that once when he was working in, in for an insurance company, one of the biggest in Russia, uh, he accidentally found himself at the presentation. There were some usual salespeople, but the product they were presenting, it was kind of awkward, strange, and a bit too expensive to buy. But the product itself, uh, it was interesting and provocative. In the summer of 2017, one of her sources witnessed the presentation of two products from GRCC that sales agents said would allow subscribers to retrieve the full resume of any individual, including passport numbers, criminal records, and more, all with minimal initial data. Access to the systems cost 18 million rubles more than $275,000 per month. When he was using the software, it was called Sherlock, he said that I always wanted to check if I could punch someone in the face for the internet, for the web. And when I was using Sherlock, uh, the Sherlock software, I felt like I'm finally doing this. I'm finally capable of it. It's pretty handy, but there is a catch. The Sholik system pulls from some databases, which usually only Russian interior ministry has access to. So it's pretty illegal, too. The services designed by GRCC wouldn't function without Russia's highly developed black market for buying and selling leaked and stolen personal data through 
Gray DBMS, Database Management Systems. Aptitude with Gray Database Management Systems like Kronos or Sprout is a nearly required skill for anyone applying to work as security personnel at a major corporation in Russia, where many security staff are former intelligence agents. According to Medusa's sources in law enforcement, where officials are responsible for leaking the personal data in the first place, the Interior Ministry and other police agencies fall back on GRCC's services because it cuts through the red tape of formal investigative procedures. But Lilia says money is what really drives this whole underground world. I know it started in the 90s, so I do believe that at first they just wanted to earn some, some money. I think it's still the same. There is a huge black market for personal data of Russian citizens. And it continues to exist and expand even because sometimes there's just no way you can get the same information legally. And people who leak these databases on the market, they can profit, profit very well from that. So I think it's, it's, it's money. Like anywhere you find money and power, GRCC's search technology is prone to abuse. Lilia says she remembers one episode in particular where this invasive software was turned against an unsuspecting nanny. Okay, my favorite story is when they used the full force of Sherlock to dig up some stuff on a nanny. One of the main Russian state armed corporations asked GRCC to do a background check on a completely unknown woman. The analyst GRCC thought she might be something serious, a criminal or a businesswoman, but they found nothing. It was only later explained to them that they were just checking a babysitter for one of the corporate executives. Now, you might be listening to this, and you're about ready to dismiss GRCC as another Kremlin project to violate civil liberties and profit off of innocent people. But first consider that the architects of systems like Sherlock only turn to illegal databases out of desperation to do something good. Now, that's not necessarily an excuse, but it's something. I don't want to advocate for the for the developers of Sherlock, but sometimes GRCC bought leaked databases directly from the black market. But I, I do believe it wasn't the aim to be the bad guy. They just wanted to make a good product, and it was the only way to do so. I mean, Russian special services and, and Russian interior ministry, they don't like to share information and they didn't make an exception for GRCC. And one of the developers of Sherlock explained it like this. Uh, he told me, sometimes this phone number from the leaked pizza delivery service database is the only link to some criminal. And that was what I was telling myself when we used some illegal data. I don't think that... These products were created for spying on civilians. I think it was for some, the developers behind it. I don't mean the GRU of his big guys or the military. I mean the developers, the young guys behind the products. They were aiming for some state-level important work. In other words, the developers behind these search systems accepted trade-offs when deciding to connect their work to these illegal databases. Lilia says they knew they were engaging in unethical behavior, but it was necessary, they figured, for the greater good of catching criminals. State officials accept compromises like this all the time when weighing civil liberties against safety and security threats. Most of us aren't policymakers, so this kind of moral calculus is probably a bit alien. But when I was reading Lilia's report and thinking about this podcast episode, it dawned on me that I make similar concessions all the time. Whenever I sign away a bit more of my privacy, 
to some corporation in exchange for new services and features. In nearly every corner of my house, there's a live microphone listening for wake words programmed by Amazon, Google, or Apple. I asked my wife if she wanted to talk about this on mic for this show, thinking it would be interesting to share with listeners how we approach this issue as a family. But she didn't want to. And when I asked, I only reminded her that she doesn't really like having these devices in our home in the first place. In the U.S., I don't know if there's much reason to worry about police agencies accessing whatever private data is floating around about me in leaked databases, but businesses are without a doubt selling that information. So there's that. To find out more about Russia's database black market and how this information is being used to unmask Russian spies, I spoke to two top researchers at Bellingcat, the investigative journalism website that's unearthed damning evidence tying the Kremlin to the downing of a passenger jet over eastern Ukraine in 2014 and the Novichok nerve agent attack in Salisbury, England last year. Bellingcat and its partners inside Russia, like investigative journalist Roman Dabrahodov at The Insider, are changing the way journalists use both open source and gray source information to report on clandestine government activities. It's an evolving animal. It started as a collection of nerds with a passion for open source uh, validation and verification that happened to uh, reach out to one another on, on, on the internet and on Twitter. You said a collection of nerds, is that what you said? Yes, yes, yes. Some of the earlier, well, the core of Bellingcat, we're all nerds, yeah? That's Krista Grozov, one of Bellingcat's senior researchers who focuses on Russia-related security and information threats. And of, of all ages and of all backgrounds, so it was not any, any, it was not a collection of people based on some education or on some particular uh, skill set, but one, one, one passion was nerdiness and uh, ability to spend hours and hours on something that may yield no results. And usually this comes at the expense of spending time with things that matter, such as family and so on and so forth. So uh, anybody who qualifies for not caring about that and how they'll be perceived by family uh, was welcome to join Bell and Cat. I personally did not join uh, in the early months. Um, I did. I was aware of this community uh, and I was independently blogging with a focus on open source um, or at least on data investigations at the same time. We focused on one of the same topics, which was MH17, uh, me and my blogs and uh, and uh, Elliot and some of the early team around him on, on the Bellingcat website, which was just uh, set up at, at about the same time. He's referring here, by the way, to Elliot Higgins, the British citizen journalist and former blogger who founded Bellingcat using open source information like videos, maps, and pictures. And at one point, uh, Elliot reached out to me and said, well, do, do you mind writing something for, uh, for Bellingcat on, on a topic that you seem to be sort of proficient on. And um, and I, I think I wrote the first thing in early 2015. Then the first major investigation I did uh, for Bellingcat was uh, the Montenegro uh, failed coup attempt um, and the possible role of Jiria into it. And that kind of opened a whole new uh, vector of investigations, which focused on Russian extraterritorial operations, secret service operations, which became, and it's, it's almost like a movie by now with, with many, or, or let's say a, a Netflix series with many uh, seasons by now. Christo came to Bellingcat after many years of broadcast radio, but the investigative team has all kinds of folks. I um, was doing an adjacent, not really Russia-focused job, and just for fun, you know, I was... Here's Eric Toller, Bellingcat's uh, Eastern Europe and Eurasia lead researcher and trainer. So I've been doing this for five years now. I did it as a volunteer at first, but now I, you know, I make a living off of it. 
And I do some investigation stuff in the Russia, but also I do trainings and workshops and things like that, teaching other people how to do like digital stalking, more or less. So what we do at Bellingcat is we um, are more or less people who spend way too much time online and find stuff online, um, verify things online, and kind of um, bring together stories off of the you know digital breadcrumbs that we come across. So, for example, um, just yesterday, the day before, we published a news story. So like the 14th, we published a story about the wedding of this GRU commander's daughter. And so there's this like big bag GRU commander that the New York Times um, wrote about last week. And he runs this um, unit that's been doing all sorts of nasty stuff, stuff across Europe and the Caucasus and so on. And so we've spent like literally like 40 hours searching like everything we could about this guy. His name is Avryanov, under Avryanov. And uh, like trying to figure out his entire like family tree and everything because buried in this New York Times story was a mention about how one of the Skripal poisoners, this guy named Anatoly Chipiga, how he was at his this GRU commander's daughter's wedding back in 2017, which is a year before the um, poisoning. So what we did is we more or less stalked like <laughs> every imaginable contact and family member and friend of everything of this Avryanov family. And after like probably dozens and dozens of hours of research, we found finally we found his daughter's real name found um, his son-in-law, her husband, and we found the wedding. And there was, this is like they use a hashtag for the wedding. It was hashtag Bakaryov wedding, I think, because there's some guy named Bakaryov that- um, They use the hashtag themselves? Yeah, and the um, and the guests did too, because this is like this really like posh, you know, fancy wedding, you know, because this guy's rich. Like he has his own driver. He's, you know, he's a rich, you know, command, you know, military commander guy. And so he put on this like super fancy wedding in this, you know, posh Moscow, you know, like, very, very Instagram friendly um, wedding. It's kind of basic, don't you think? It's like, oh, it's, yeah. Well, I mean, this is like, this is really New York City basic like seven years ago, and now it's like cutting edge fashion. Um, but so this had this very Instagram friendly wedding that his daughter put on. And so we looked through all the guests and the family and everything. And we eventually found um, the wedding photographer and the witty, what they hired a videographer too to do like a two and a half minute, like super, you know, spiffy video about the wedding. Um, and all this footage and all these photos and all these videos and everything we found from the guests and the video, the you know the bride and groom themselves and the videographer and the wedding photographer, we found um, four or five photos and videos that show Chipiga, who is the Skripal poisoner, the one who was interviewed on RT by um, Margot Simonian. Um, we found right. him among the guests for the daughter of a GRU commander's wedding. So this is kind of what we do: is we just go through and we just exhaust every possible angle you can think of. You know, staring at a you know family trees on contact you on the Klasniki and Facebook and so on, and um, we just go through everything we possibly can and then you know pull um, stories together from it. The GRU wedding story has many of the same features as previous investigative reports about Russian spies, but how do these stories come together? Christo and Eric explained Bellingcat's workflow, which relies almost entirely on volunteer initiative and the miracle of Slack. Very often, it would be just an idea, a topic that somebody uh, of the team of 30-something people that are actively uh, scouting out new ideas would feel passionate about, would, would put a, open a new channel on our Slack uh, platform and would say, oh, who wants to join? And then you would have between one and uh, or between zero and, and, and 15 additional members that will say, hey, I'm interested in that. It really depends on um, what we're looking at. But usually we have kind of a standard like things you do in your sleep. Like, you know, you, you find a person. Well, what you do is the first thing you try to do is find out their um, birthday and their patronymic if you can. So this um, Avaryanov guy, well, for example, we're trying to find his daughter because his daughter would have stuff about her wedding. So we know that his name, his her dad's name is um, Andre. So she's on something, Andreevna 
Avryanova. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we did is we have all sorts of leaked databases, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, like Moscow residential databases, Moscow car registration databases, flight databases, things like that. And we can do a wildcard search, which wildcard search is like a little asterisk, you know, shift eight. And it just means anything, right? So you have the wild, the first name is like the wildcard. It can be anything. It could be Larissa, Anastasia, whatever. And then the patronymic is Andreevna and the last name is Avryanova. And then we can guess that she was probably born in the late 80s, early 90s, based on her, you know, being married recently. So then we just kind of have like this big giant pool of candidates of different women um, who are about the right age and have the right patronymic and right last name. So then we just pull through and look for every single one of these people and see if, um, and also, you know, we find the family of Andre, the GRU commander, and we find the, if there's any overlapping connections between the daughter or potential daughters and the confirmed GRU commander, because, you know, his brother would be her uncle and they're probably friends on, you know, Facebook or on the class or something like that. And once we find an overlap, you know, with lots of different common connections, then we can do the hardcore stalking on Instagram and YouTube and whatever. And the way it works out is over time, we've developed two different writing styles and therefore two different audiences. One would be the report file, the report format, which would typically be a PDF version of the, uh, that would be kind of the, the one one way to figure out for what audience it is. If it's a PDF, it's likely to be for law enforcement or for specialists or for think tanks that might spend the time to uh, to care uh, about detail, yeah. Uh, then the other, the other form would be just the, the the blog form, which would typically be meant for journalists uh, as opposed to the general public. Over the last year or so, we've begun to sort of uh, our foray into writing directly to the to the reader. Are you always working at cross purposes with the law enforcement in the localities where you're doing research or sometimes are you working in tandem? No. Um, it's with, with one possible exception, which is the MH17 investigation, where we have made it an exception to provide our findings to law enforcement, to the joint investigation team ahead of our publications. The rest of the time, it's always at cross. The work on the Skripal case was a particular example where British law enforcement were not happy with us jumping the gun and and publishing findings that they were probably preferring to keep uh, as leverage in their talks to to Russia, maybe, or or for whatever reason, didn't want to publish, such as names of additional suspects. Um, And as a result, we didn't get uh, tips from them, which other media that are probably less likely to jump the gun are, are getting, um, like traditional mainstream media that have proven their worthiness to, uh, to agencies. But yes, typically we would not have any form of cooperation with, with the example of, uh, of joint investigation team, but there is a purely one-way cooperation. We provide data to them and we either get a smile or, or nothing back, but never information back from them. But, but we know it's worth it, so, so it's fine. Bellingcat began as a purely open-source investigative project, but it's gradually started using some of the same gray databases accessed by software marketed by GRCC that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast episode. I asked Eric and Christo about the ethical ramifications of turning to this kind of information, like this story about Chipiga, the Skripal poisoner attended GRU commander family wedding. That's the title. But it cites previously leaked Russian offline residential and car ownership databases, in addition to the social media stuff that you were just describing, 
is this is this an ethical dis- discussion within Bellingcat? You know that you're going to be using these sort of semi legal, semi what have you databases, and how does it sort of what's the how has it affected the kind of like mission statement of the project that you are now kind of you have your fingers and even even more pies? It's a tough question about like exactly where do you draw the line with how far you go with um, researching information. So this is something we talk about um, quite a bit. But you you know our general principle is you know do no harm and try not to. Um, share more than we have to. So, I mean, even if you look at, um, you know, the New York Times versus the New York Post versus the New York Daily News, right? They'll have different standards about what they use, what kind of access they get and all that stuff, which is a bigger journalism question. Um, but our general guideline with this is we'll get pretty much any leaked or offline database or collection of data we can find because if we can access it, then it's, you know, it's technically, it's kind of like half open, half closed source. We sometimes you have to pay a little bit of money to get these you know, pay 30, 40 euros or something for some of these databases. Uh, but most of them you can find online on a torrent file somewhere uh, or another online. So the ones you mentioned earlier with the um, car registration, all that, that is, most of it is you could just plug in a link on your torrent and just scrape it right away. And also some of them have been indexed and online. So if you Google, um, there's a few, I think like nomer.org, N-O-M-E-R.org, they've indexed a lot of these um, leaked databases as well, like residential databases for Moscow especially. So a lot of these leaked databases are like, you know, you have to have, you know, proprietary software to access something like a, the Russian version of Microsoft Access, more or less, to get into them. But a lot of them have been indexed online as well, and they're indexed on Google and Yandex and elsewhere. So um, with these things, we port more or less try to, you know, we use pretty much any offline database we can possibly get. In procuring this black market information, Eric is eager to avoid one particular comparison. Um, but we don't like procure packed data. Like we don't like, we're not like you know, WikiLeaks, you know, like, you know, I don't know, (laughs) targeting people or um, trying to receive, or we don't receive personalized, like, databases of hacked data either. Like, you know, like, you know, some jury you would ever hacks and gives it to us on, just not quite like that. Um, But if it's it's available online, either for download or for a purchase at a low fee, then, you know, we'll go after that. You can understand why Eric doesn't like comparisons to WikiLeaks, which is widely suspected of laundering intelligence leaked by Russian spies in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Bellingcat's critics like to characterize it as the Western authorities' response to WikiLeaks, a media outlet that works for NATO or other anti-Russian powers that be, Martians, aliens, you name it. But the point is that they supposedly launch hypocritical investigations into Russia. If you ever write about Bellingcat or even share their work on social media, you often run into folks who are convinced that Bellingcat is effectively an arm of Western intelligence, or that it's celebrated in the West for doing the same thing as WikiLeaks, albeit aimed mostly at Russia. Bellingcat's researchers acknowledge that they've had to adapt and turn increasingly to information that isn't always open source, but they insist that the essence of their work is the same as it always was. What hasn't changed is the attention to forensic data. Uh, So I would say that all of our work is forensic data journalism, uh, some of it is open source and some of it is now closed source, which we try to keep to the minimum. Originally, we did only open source, um, but then government started reacting and hiding the data, um, purging data from, 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 from social media uh, networks. In particular, this was visible with the, uh, with, with the new law that was enforced in Russia with, uh, that, that banned soldiers and officers from posting anything on their, especially photographs on, on their social media. They deleted, went back and deleted and purged a lot of the photographs that had been posted from Ukraine um, that we used for the initial 
findings on uh, MH17 and the involvement of the 53rd Brigade. So we were confronted towards the uh, middle of 2017 with a new reality where a government, in particular Russia in this case, was actively trying to purge the open source data that we previously had found and exposed. So then we had to decide, well, in what circumstances is it justified for us to go and uh, reopen the Pandora's box of data um, at the expense of not uh, using open source only. And we decided that that would only be uh, acceptable ethically when we're investigating state-level crime, state-level security services crime, because it's a Goliath, it's sort of a, a Goliath actor. You can't really disclose their mischiefs abroad by using open source data only, especially when they're actively trying to purge it. Krista says his team also feels compelled to turn to great databases in its investigations because Bellingcat has proven itself to be one of the only organized groups with the skills needed to do this work, which is often the only way to catch state actors. We found out that Western law enforcement is also not equipped with the knowledge or with the a skill set or with the enthusiasm to go and look at these gray uh, data sources. And therefore, if we didn't jump into that, then that information we felt was not going to be found. And therefore, an, an actor, a Goliath actor, would just have exclusivity on, first of all, on, on having illegal access and illegitimate access and even profiting from it, as your story uh, su- suggests correctly, on its own people. But then nobody being able to defend those same people from from that government. So we thought, well, whenever we talk about a substantiated suspicion or somebody's uh, indictment or accusation against somebody that works or allegedly works for the Russian government and their secret services, it would be fine for us to go into this gray area. And yes, we're using the same data sources that they use. Um, All of these leaked uh, offline databases over the last 20 years are all uh, downloadable. And if you know how to look for them, you you can create your own archive of data, which we have. So we try to minimize the need to go and talk to sources that have this data for reasons of hygiene, but also for reasons of not exposing these sources to further risk. Um, There there was a lot of witch hunting uh, by by FSB after our initial disclosures on... uh, on the Skripal suspects, uh, they went after a lot of these data providers and sources. And even though none of those that got arrested were the people that we had worked with before, we felt guilty. So we, we tried to use the offline data as much as possible. Eric says leaked information is especially useful when researchers need what he calls fossilized data. Here he is explaining what that means. A lot of the data here is like is like fossilized or crystallized for when it was leaked. Because um, we also will sometimes look at some existing um, Russian like government database. A lot of these are freely available and otherwise you have to, you know, you may have to like fib a little bit on online forms to get the data, but you can, but you can get it. It's not that not too difficult. And a lot of times that data will be changed because it's like a live active living database that the government can, you know, add to remove change or whatever. But this database I was like in 2016, you know, if somebody doesn't do anything that's big and public and whatever until 2019, then, you know, it's not like the government of Russia can go in there and like time travel and change what the database looked like in 2016 and then release it online. Because these things are floating around. They have like, you know, thousands of seeds on torrents and things like that. And, you know, one person can't modify it and then change it for everyone else who's on the torrent. It's, you know, it's it's crystallized and fossilized as, as it was then. So that's actually a big plus for us is when we have this these old offline databases 
they, you know, they're stuck as they are when they're released and they can't be, they aren't living documents, living databases like um, you have with, you know, ongoing vehicle registration databases that if you were to do it, like if you're a Russian policeman or insurance agent or something like that, and you search for it, that could be, those lifetime results could be modified. And they often are um, by, you know, whoever wants information changed. But Eric emphasizes that Bellingcat's approach to investigative journalism is fundamentally unchanged, thanks largely to the continued blunders and laziness of Russia's intelligence agencies. We're using roughly the same. I mean, we're still doing a lot of, you know, social media stalking and looking for visual materials and referencing them and verifying them and all that stuff. But we've also been doing some topics that aren't quite as maybe like fertile for those um, type of investigations. So like with this, um, all the GRU stuff we do, like a lot of times you can't find the GRU agents on social media. So we have to use um, some of these leaked databases as a crutch to get to more information. So for example, we can use these databases, we can find their false identities, their second passwords they use because they, this is, we do this because they aren't very good at covering up their tracks. So for example, the um, Mishkin, who's the second Skripal poisoner. So there's um, Anatoly Chapiga, who's the guy at the wedding. And there's Alexander Mishkin, who is a doctor who was the second man who helped with the Skripal poisoning. And this guy, we couldn't do this with just social media, but with some of these leaked databases, we can, we have more capabilities now. He used his the same first name, the same patronymic, and the same birth date um, for his fake identity, which was Alexander Petrov, as his real identity. So if you just search these databases with, you know, um, first name, patronymic, and then wildcard for last name, and then the same birth date, there's only a handful of people with that information. And if you search them, eventually you find like, oh, you know, this guy's passport number is, you know, five different than um, <laughs> another GRU agent that we know. So they're issued in the same batch. So they, they're really, really, really bad at um, covering up their tracks. And we have, I wish I could talk about it now, but we have another investigation coming out soon about another GRU agent that we found. And his cover identity is literally, his last name is literally one letter different than his um, real identity. He just changed his name by one letter. So again, the, like this is something you can't look for on VK or Facebook or whatever. But if you have access to some of these databases, which... You know, if you have a you know a pirated copy of Kronos and a torrent file, then you could you know you can scrape it. And then you can just do some of these like logical searches of you know I have a guy I have, I have a GRU agent I'm wondering what his fake passport his fake identity is. Well, he probably uses the same birthday, same name, same patronymic, and you plug those in and you get a list of um, candidates that you can then research one by one. So yeah, so we're still doing a lot of the stuff we've done before, but now we just have new um, avenues to kind of generate new leads um, and new ideas. You know? Okay. So there's a data leak problem inside the Russian state, particularly among law enforcement. The roots of the issue are money and corruption, and this flood of information also makes it possible for researchers inside Russia and abroad to track down and expose some of the Russian government's most secretive actions. The Kremlin knows this, so does that mean the leaks will be plugged? Both Medusa's Lilia Yaparova and Bellingcat's Krista Grozov doubt it. I don't see a way this problem can be solved. I don't think this is going anywhere. It's just the way these things are working in Russia now. And I don't see what magical uh, force of nature could um, sweep it all away and change the way the things are right now. No, I mean, I have hard evidence, reasons to believe that this is a 
machine. It's a money machine that will never be closed for as long as the FSB continues to exist. The FSB, uh, I, I, I don't buy the argument that a lot of these data sets are leaked by law enforcement officers who want to cut the red tape. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but primarily it's money driven. It's a it's a bunch of 20, 25 companies that are owned by former or current FSB officers or a combination of both that uh, pay good money for um, uh, for their colleagues or former colleagues to provide them with data sets that they aggregate and then they provide it uh, in a number of different pl- platforms to private clients, to uh, company secu- in- internal company security officers, to insurance agencies. And part of them are sold back to law enforcement as, um, as, as, as correctly described in the Medusa story. But it's a money machine uh, that is in the um, hundreds of millions by now. And I cannot imagine anything changing that because the FSB is a utterly corrupt agency that when instructed to cut down and clamp down on, on data crime, they will do it for a couple of weeks or a couple of months at best. But then they know they have to come back to uh, turning a blind eye to it because that's how they're getting a lot of their own money. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, a new podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. Today, we looked at leaked databases and how the black market for this information has become a key aspect of Russian law enforcement and investigative journalism in Russia. On upcoming episodes of this show, we'll be looking at Russian tabloid journalism and its reverberations in the Western news media and Kremlin clan politics and the power of the presidential administration. The Naked Pravda is a new podcast from Medusa, our first English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more ears. Thanks for listening, and come back soon. <laughs>